Lit Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome to The Profile with me, Justin Briley, brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. It's a brilliant monthly resource for Christians who want to connect their faith with culture. And you can get the latest edition free at premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And The Profile itself is available on podcast at premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. Jeff Vines is my guest today. Jeff is senior pastor at One and All Church in Southern California. And his teaching program today with Jeff Vines has recently started broadcasting on our very own Premier Christian Radio on Sunday mornings. Uh, Jeff's also the author of books, including Dinner with Skeptics, Defending God in a World That Makes No Sense. And Jeff and I are friends. In fact, I've had the honour of speaking at One and All Church. And Jeff, at least pre-COVID, was a, a pretty regular visitor to the UK as well. Mm. In fact, Jeff, as we'll hear, has spent a lot of time in other parts of the world, including Zimbabwe and New Zealand, planting mm. churches there. So, Jeff, welcome along to the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. And by the way, I'm not sure I can invite you back because people keep asking me when you're coming back. And I just don't think I can stand the comparison. But uh, no, you you were so loved in L.A. Uh, and I, we were just so grateful to have you and to partner with you. So I'm glad to be here. But thank you for for taking part in one and all church. Oh, well, it was my absolute pleasure to be there. It seems almost a lifetime ago now because mm. the world has changed so much since that summer of 2019 when I was with you guys. Um, but um Let's start there, Jeff. Uh, firstly, can you just make me jealous and tell me just what kind of lovely weather you're having right now? <laughs> you know, this has probably been uh, the best winter outside of COVID-19, obviously, but this has been the best winter weather-wise that I can remember since I arrived in Southern California in 2007. So it's just every day is like 21 degrees, 22 degrees, wow. not a cloud in the sky, no humidity. <laughs> It's like God said, you know what, this far and no further. <laughs> it's it's tough with COVID, but here have some sunshine. So oh, wow. it's it's been beautiful golf weather. So you know what that means. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, all I can say is you have definitely succeeded in making me jealous there. <laughs> <laughs> that does not describe the current weather in the UK where it's drizzly, damp, and rarely gets much above four or five degrees. Anyway, um, it's, it's great to have you. I actually have a question there because, you yeah. know, I've never been to London. I come every year until COVID, but I've never been to London in the summertime. So that's all I know of London. Right. And I still love the city because of well, the culture and the buildings. But what's the summer like? Well, the summer can be quite nice, actually. You know, we, we have our moments. In fact, yeah, a, a couple of two years ago, we had a, the, one of the hottest, longest, driest summers on record. So uh, so we were glad when the rain came eventually. But um, yeah, it, it, it can vary. I mean, there are jokes about the British summertime, you know, uh, <laughs> that it's indistinguishable from from the rainy season. But anyway, Does um, the population swell. Um, well, I, I, the thing is, British people have tended to go abroad in the summer. You know, mm. they, they, they tend to go to the south of France, places like that, or at least to the south of England, where it's a little bit warmer, um, mm. more slightly more tropical. But um, yeah, I, I, I would say that um, even our best summers don't tend to compare with the, the California mm. <laughs> sunshine, um, which uh, I've had the, the pleasure of experiencing occasionally. Um, but look, we, I want to talk about, um, first of all, what COVID has been like in your neck of the woods. Um, you've been pastoring one and all church, I think since around 2008, Jeff, in Southern California. Yeah. Um, and it's been on quite, quite the interesting journey, but obviously COVID has struck churches, ministries everywhere. 
um, really hard. Um, what, what's been the, the situation for you in, in your ministry? Well, you know, in the beginning of COVID-19, there was such uh, a, a scare and panic that hit Southern California. So because we were unsure and because we also knew that those who were giving us information were unsure and not positive about a lot of the information, people tended to just stay in their homes, not leave their houses. Amazon must have done incredibly well. <laughs> uh, it, people were ordering food, everything, and it was delivered to your door. And then the the deliverer would leave it at the door, run away. You would open the door, take, and that happened for quite some time. And there are actually are still people who are doing exactly that. And so in the few, in the beginning months, uh, of 2020, all the way, probably through to August, uh, we weren't meeting, uh, but we were ready to do online church because we were already producing online services for our ministries down in New Zealand, Australia, and the islands, and even in places like Indonesia and India and Nepal, so a lot of the things we were doing, or we needed to do, were already happening. So we we, we kind of made the transition without uh, much struggle. Uh, we simply went to an online audience, and I started doing daily devotions because the thing that concerned me was that they would not have connection with their pastoral staff. And almost immediately, we went from this on-campus uh, production service to not only the service provided online. We actually had great ministry happening with our online counselors and uh, our, our group called Regeneration that was a, a, a spinoff of uh, things like Celebrate Recovery. And so suddenly you had hundreds of coaches, life counselors, uh, contacting people in their homes through Zoom or whatever, Facebook or Face, uh, FaceTime, whatever they wanted to do, whatever form they wanted to, to use. You had one-on-one uh, encounters. And what that did is it really encouraged people to stay in community, even though it was a small community at the time. So COVID-19 hit, we, and it was stage by stage. We, we went online strictly in the beginning. Then we had one-on-one -on -one counseling and life coaching to encourage people. And then some people wanted to come back and they allowed us to meet in what were called watch parties. So the government said, you can't meet as a church, but you can meet in groups of 20 or less. And so we found that our people were so hungry for fellowship and to be together and encourage each other to pray together, to worship together, that we immediately established these homes where people would come together. And quite frankly, Justin, a good thing happened during that mm. because people started inviting their friends who were looking for answers, who were yeah. not necessarily used to going to church. And they seemed to be more open to coming to a watch party than going to a campus. Mm -hmm. And we saw decisions starting to take place. And we thought, my goodness, we're about to have one of the most successful years of ministry <laughs> in the history and the life of our church. And quite frankly, as I look back now, I believe that we did. Wow. I believe that you had people come together and realize their need for one another. So people who weren't in groups before joined groups. Mm -hmm. And then you had people in our community that were really not previously interested in attending church interested in attending a group of people who were whatever they were doing. And so they would have prayer times together and they would pray for their people in the community. And then they would watch the message, the worship time, but then they would stay and wow. they would have lunch together. Mm. And sometimes yeah. some of our coaches told us it would go all, all afternoon. They would get out and yeah, play yeah. badminton in the yard yeah, or yeah. go into the swimming pools because of our lovely weather in Southern yeah, California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I saw something happening. I got our executive team together and I said, you know, I'm concerned that after COVID we'll forget this and mm -hmm. we won't have the community and the relationship. What it did for me 
is may help me to realize that that must be a both and in the future. Mm. We must continue our groups and community groups where people come together and feel comfortable to, to meet with people in smaller groups while at the same time offering the corporate gathering mm. for those who are interested in the corporate gathering. Yeah. So we're, we're really concentrating on two different things now simultaneously with a primary emphasis on discipleship. And you and I've talked a lot about that in the past. Mm. Yeah, well, well that, that's really encouraging to hear because I think a lot of people kind of, especially I think in, here in the UK, have, have really felt the effect. Now, I think it's it's helped a lot of churches to up their game and engage with the online side, which, you know, and it's long overdue in many ways. But I, I think, yeah, obviously there are different ways in which, you know, the level of lockdown has hit different places in the world. We've, we've been going through quite a period of intense lockdown where most churches have chosen to not um, meet in person and, and indeed, you know, even gatherings in houses and so on are not yet allowed here in the UK. You know, for us, it was like God saw this coming and I'm sure he did Mm. and established uh, things in our church that we really weren't thinking about as deep, Justin is sending us the right people. Cause it's, it's not enough just to have an idea or equipment. Mm. You have to have the people with vision. So I've got a guy in the studio with me right now, Ben Lounsbury, who uh, went through the Hillsong school uh, was, was part of uh, a fantastic church who understood uh, technology and reaching the world with the gospel. So God brought him into us at the right time and the right place. And actually he's sitting here, you can't see him, but he's making sure everything runs properly right sure. now. And he's got a team of people around him who are fantastic at this. And I'm the old guy, you know, it, it, it's difficult to wake up one day and realize, wait a second, I'm that old guy that when I was younger thought did not know anything about ministry. <laughs> and, uh, so it's, I'm so grateful to have these guys around, yeah, but yeah. there is a whole world to reach mm, through online mm, and through media. Mm. And I think God is always redeeming every part of the culture for his purposes. And online technology is one of those. Yeah. yeah. Tell, tell me about, we'll go right back to the beginning as we always do here on the profile, first of all, Jeff, but tell me about uh, life growing up. Um, did you, did you grow up in a kind of Christian environment? I grew up in a, in a home where my parents uh, in the beginning in my childhood were very nominal Christians. They did take us to church and it was more of a social activity. And, uh, I remember being so afraid of God that if I did the wrong thing, he was going to come down and I, that was it for me. (laughs) And that's kind of what I grew up in. But, you know, in my teen years, my mother and my father had a real conversion experience. (laughs) And interestingly enough, Justin, it was through the ministry of Charles Stanley. Do you remember Mm, out of Atlanta? Yeah, absolutely. And I remember my mother sitting on the couch almost every night with an in touch magazine and Charles Stanley would come on the television and the radio around seven 30 at night. And she would listen on the radio at seven to seven 30, then on the TV from seven 30 to eight and make little notes in her Bible and the margin. And she began to grow. And as she did, we did. And so by the time I graduated high school, you know, my parents were full on Christ followers and uh, had made dramatic changes in their lives, including in their marriage. Jesus had transformed them. I mean, both my parents came from broken, alcoholic, abusive homes But when they found this commonality in Christ, I saw an amazing healing in their marriage and the way they talked to each other and the way they got along. I mean, if, if there's ever a case that I had in my life where I could witness the transformational power of Christ, it was in my own parents. Mm. Now that did something to me. It, 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 it caused me to go from nominal Christianity to taking very seriously 
the gospel, especially the gospel of grace. So I decided I was uh, going to go uh, to college. I went to college on a basketball scholarship, and it just so happened that that college was very Christ-centered. And so now God has taken me through another avenue. And from there, uh, I sat under a, a professor in a class called the Doctrine of Grace. And so I'm 22, 23, and for the first time in my life, I'm hearing about grace. And then I'm putting this together with what I had learned about the judgment of God. And then I saw the transformational power in my parents from God. And I felt like it wasn't until I was probably in my late 20s that it suddenly dawned on me, this is a God of love and grace who has transformational power for every human life. And if we'll just kind of you know, open the window into a life with Christ, it can be transformational. Well, that, that, that did something else in me that start that, that, that created intrigue. So now I really wanted to know what the Bible actually said about life. And for some reason, uh, just quickly, a side note, I, my wife and I did a temperament test once because we wanted to improve the love language in our marriage. Mm. And the lady who did the test looked at me after we'd gone through the whole two, three days of testing and that questioning, answering questions. And she just kind of sat back in the chair and she goes, I can't believe that you're a preacher. And I thought, well, what? <laughs> and she said, well, everything about you tells me that you're ADD, you're ADHD, that you, <laughs> you have a hard time concentrating. And I started thinking she was right. But there's one exception to that. For some reason, when I start reading the Bible and studying scripture, my wife makes the comment, man, you can, you can go into your office for eight hours and not even realize how much time has passed. And I think it's because I'm so intrigued by this transformational power that I've seen in people's lives, especially my own parents, that I want to know what God has revealed to us through his word. And I, I can tell you, I love studying the scripture. I love reading great authors like Tim Keller and Philip Yancey. Mm. Um, I, love, uh, I love the study part of it more than I love the communication part of it. Yeah. which is why my wife tells me, you know, your sermons are too long. You got to start cutting them down because, <laughs> you know, you think you have to say everything that you've learned because you're passionate about it. <laughs> so I got into the word and then I met, and we're going to talk about this in a moment. And I, I, mm. I think I need to say this. Then I was greatly influenced by Dr. Ravi Zacharias in apologetic mm. ministry when I was in New Zealand. Mm. And so I did 10 years in Africa, 10 years in New Zealand. And I've always had a heart to communicate the good news of the gospel in a way that is culturally relevant. And I think that's important in preaching. I found that a lot of times in my thirties, I was preaching to the choir. I was just saying what everybody else already believed or wanted to hear. When I went to New Zealand, things changed because I found myself in a post-Christian nation. Mm -hmm. And I realized I was, I was, I was answering questions. No one was asking. And so as I stopped, took a pause, and started to learn culture, I realized I was totally irrelevant. Not that the gospel was irrelevant. I was irrelevant in the way I was communicating it. And so I really worked hard two or three years at the, with the help of a guy by the name of Bill McCarthy, who was a television New Zealand icon. And he and I started working together on culture because he was a non-believer at the time. So I could sit down with him and we became good friends because he loved basketball. So he, mm. he sees this American tall basketball player and we start having lunch together and dinner together and life together, going to basketball games together. And Bill, uh, Bill would really help me. He said, you, you have to understand, you assume that people are rejecting God in New Zealand. I'm telling you, they're not rejecting him. They don't care about him. <laughs> You're trying to prove his existence. 
they don't care whether he exists or not. Mm, and mm. that really opened my eyes yeah. to some things. And that's where the, the shift happened. Yeah. And wow. I started approaching every text in scripture with the idea that someone was listening that had no idea about what God teaches or what, who God is rather and what the scripture mm, teaches. Mm. We'll, we'll open up some of that. And especially the kind of the apologetic side of, of your ministry in due course. And when did you meet Robin, your wife? Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I was, I'm incredibly blessed, of course. I met Robin in my last year of university, and she was the daughter of a veteran missionary. Her father, Charlie Delaney, planted over 30 churches wow. in the bush of Zambia, what was then northern Rhodesia in the 60s and 70s. And Robin had come home to go to university. She was a graduating senior and I was a freshman. I always give her a very difficult time about that. <laughs> and uh, so I say, you know, you went to university for four years and you could not find the right man until I came along. <laughs> and of course, then she says, well, you know what the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's older, he won't fall from it. So she gives it back as good as she gets it, I'm sure. But I was very blessed to marry someone like Robin, the daughter of a veteran missionary. She, in many ways, had a deeper more intimate relationship with Jesus than I did. Mine tended to be very heady in those days. And then meeting her opened up a new world to me that my mother had begun to give me before I left home. And so now uh, marrying her, she, uh, she went back to Zimbabwe. By the way, interesting story. When we met, I was about to lose her because she had made a commitment to return to Africa for three years. And she mm. felt like she could not go against that commitment. Hmm. So I told her, go and I'll finish school. And this is before, you know, email and yeah. telephone, yeah. cell phone, mm -hmm. you know? So in those days you couldn't communicate. So to say goodbye to her for two years meant to say goodbye to her for two years mm. with, the, except for those little aerograms. You remember those? Yeah. Yeah. Write? Yeah. The, the little uh, letters you can send in the yeah. post. Yeah. 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 And so we wrote and we figured if, if God meant this uh, to be a, a, a successful relationship, that somehow we would work this out. In 1985, my junior year of university, my third year, I went to Africa to see her. I missed her and to find out what her life was about. And I fell in love with it mm. and fell in love with her. She came back after her three-year commitment. We were married. And then we went back to Africa together to continue the work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So she's quite a special person. We have two kids, mm -hmm. uh, Delaney, who is 27, Sian, who's 25. Uh, Delaney works with us here at One and All in media and is being trained somewhat by Ben, who's mm -hmm. seated here next to me. Mm -hmm. And then my daughter, Sian, works in Kazakhstan, teaching English and uh, sharing her faith with her friends. So I'm very wow. proud of both of them. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Um, so, so tell us about that period in, in Africa. Um, I mean, was this while, where, when you were in Zimbabwe and, and pastoring there and tell us about like the basketball as well, because uh, were you originally planning to kind of do that professionally? What, what was the plan there? Well, that was the hope and dream I'm sure of, of every American basketball player. I played in college. I was a very good college player. I was actually a two-time All-American and my uh, senior year led the nation in scoring in NCCAA. Uh, so yes, I was trying to, my, my plan was to go to the, what it was then called the continental basketball league and see if I was good enough to make it. And I went to a tryout camp at Tennessee tech university and it's five days of playing in hopes that a coach will see you and somehow you'll get recruited. Well, Justin, after the first day, I realized I had been a big fish in a small pond. <laughs> I realized that I, I was out of my league. And I went to the coach after the first day because I had no trouble scoring, but I couldn't defend anyone. They were so much bigger, stronger, and faster. And so I went to the coach after the first day, and I said, Coach, 
Who are we kidding? I don't want to waste any more of your time. He looked at me and he said, Jeff Vines, you are the first basketball player ever to come to terms with that reality. And yes, you're right. You don't belong here. There's such a, there's such a wide gap between yeah. great players in college and MB, what it takes to be an NBA yeah, player. Yeah. And I was nowhere near that. It's right. a joke. And I look back at it now to think that I even thought that I could do it. Well, <laughs> and you know, it wasn't to go. me. I, no. I, I, I learned a lot about basketball. It's not something I've ever followed here in the UK, but um, from that, that Netflix documentary, The Last Dance, I'm guessing you mm. watched that as well, Jeff. It's, uh, yeah. It, it, the, it, the sad thing is the world wasn't as small then. And yeah. I didn't realize I did have the talent. I could have gone and played somewhere in the world and probably made a pretty good living. Sure. Yeah, but yeah. then the world wasn't that no. small. You know, you yeah. didn't realize you could go to Europe or you could go yeah, to the yeah. South Pacific, China, Japan. If I'd have known that now, I probably would have. But I don't believe that's where God wanted me. Yeah. So he sends this lovely woman in my life <laughs> to take me to Africa to show me this is what you're going to yeah. do for me. Tell, tell us what happened in Africa then. Um, just It'll have to be the short version. Um, okay, the short version yeah. in Africa is I, I, got over, I went over there to coach basketball, Justin. Mm. I was recruited by uh, Campus Crusade Athletes in Action. There was a guy by the name of Hugh Brandt who asked me to come over and help at the University of Zimbabwe uh, coach basketball. And we were going to do uh, 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 campus Bible studies. And I, I was very keen to do that. What happened is 10 days after we arrived in the country, the missionary that recruited us lost his permit under the Mugabe regime. The mission board came to me and said, Jeff, this is going to be difficult for you to hear, but we really need you to pastor our English speaking church in the city. And I knew that meant giving up basketball mm-hmm. and campus ministry, but I also knew that they were between a rock and a hard place. It was me or nobody. And wouldn't you know it, I said yes and discovered my passion is for teaching and preaching. That's the short version. So yeah, I yeah. preached and I taught uh, the time we were in Zimbabwe and loved Zimbabwe. I still go back every year, uh, of course, until COVID. My yeah. trip is usually London to Nairobi to <laughs> Rwanda and then Zimbabwe. Wow. Wow. I'm sure there are friendships you made there, which obviously have lasted to, to the present day. What, what did you learn that you kind of took with you from that period in Zimbabwe? Well, I learned a couple of valuable lessons right away. One is that it's a mistake to try to transplant the Western church into the African culture and society. It took me a couple of years to learn that. But when I did, the ministry was much more successful. Mm. And the church that I pastored has just gone leaps and bounds because there's a young Shona man by uh, Denver Chizanga beautiful man of God, who's still a close friend of mine, who pastors churches, plants churches all over Zimbabwe, and is doing a remarkable job because I just wasn't able to contextualize the gospel into the Shona culture as successfully as I should have been able to because of a lack of training. If Mm. I were to go back, I would do things differently, but God at the same time used me then as Mm. he uses us now. And the church is going from strength to strength. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had recently had a, an interview with a remarkable young man, um, uh, Richmond Wandera, who's um, pastor of a church in Kampala in Uganda. And I, I spent some time myself in Uganda uh, in, in a gap year before university. Um, and we were talking uh, then about some of the challenges facing churches in Africa, not least um, one of his big concerns is the kind of prevalence of the prosperity gospel movement and that kind of thing across East Africa and indeed the whole of the continent. Um, did you kind of come across much of that yourself? What was your feeling about, you know, and what is your feeling now, I suppose, about the, the obviously we've seen an amazing flowering of Christianity across the African continent, but, but there are also these, these challenges that come with it, aren't there? 
Yes. You know, I'm glad that that is a fantastic question because what I learned in my period in Africa is that part of us uh, going over and trying to transplant more of a Western culture into the African church, you know, you were, you were singing songs, you were doing things that were kind of not similar. You know, the Africans mm-hmm. are exorbitant. They are exuberant rather. Sorry. Mm-hmm. They're excitable. They are, they love to show their praise and worship. I mean, when they have a wedding, it's an all day mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And so our Western type did not fit very well. Mm-hmm. However, the more, and I say this respectfully, the more mm-hmm. radical Pentecostal way of health, health and prosperity mm-hmm. did fit in mm-hmm. the sense that there was excitement, there was passion. Mm-hmm. Now, what I would disagree with is that while the prosperity gospel has taken over that eastern part in the central part of Africa. So we're talking about Zambia, Zimbabwe, Malawi, Namibia, even parts of South Africa. There is a huge movement back toward the center mm. where uh, there is a, there's a type of theology that teaches, yes, God wants to bless you, but it's more important for you to submit to the the calling of God on your life. And sometimes that calling could be suffering. Mm. In fact, I would argue that the reason the church has gone from strength to strength in Zimbabwe is it has responded well to suffering under the Mugabe regime because it has taken a stand and it has said, look, you know, we need to take a stand here and say that this is injustice. It's inappropriate. And we need to stand up for our brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. So rather than claiming something they decided that God was going to use them best in the way of suffering well and mm. saying, we, no matter what happens in our lives, if we don't have everything that we need, if we do suffer, if there are troubles, that we're, it doesn't take away from the reality that Christ has overcome the world and he will give us the power to sustain us during the most difficult times of our lives. And so uh, I would argue that for, for much of Central Africa, the prosperity the health, wealth, and wealth prosperity gospel is on the way out rather than on the way in. But there are still places where it's on the way in. Another place, by the way, Justin, some of my best experiences were in the prisons of Rwanda after the genocide mm-hmm. in 94. Mm-hmm. And in those prisons, you learned of a gospel and understanding. Not how, I mean, how could you maintain that prosperity belief when, you're, when you've just been through a genocide? Well, the church adapted to more what I think uh, a theological center when it began to understand that evil is very real in our world, and there is a prince of the power of the air, and our job is to combat that evil with good, to combat hate with forgiveness, to combat retribution with a sense of reconciliation. That message took over in the prisons, and that to a great degree, if you were to talk to President Kagame, is what has healed their land. Mm. We're going to take a break. I'm with Jeff Vines here on The Profile today. It's Justin Briley. Speaking with Jeff, who's senior pastor of One and All Church in Southern California. And you should really check out Today with Jeff Vines. Uh, It's Jeff's ministry show, which is broadcasting here on Premier Christian Radio every Sunday morning. We're going to talk about some of uh, Jeff's books as well. Uh, And we will touch on the subject of Ravi Zacharias. Um, Jeff mentioned that earlier. And there's obviously been um, a lot of controversy around uh, Ravi posthumously in recent months. So um, we'll be back with Jeff Vines very shortly. You're listening to The Profile. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. 
Welcome back to the second part of today's show with me, Justin Briley, brought to you as ever in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine, wonderful monthly resource. And you can get a free sample copy of the latest edition at premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And today's show is available via podcast too over on our website, premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. My guest is Jeff Vines, senior pastor at One and All Church in Southern California. It's a beautiful place. I've been there myself to speak. And uh, I can tell you that Jeff is one of the most dynamic preachers I've ever seen in action. And you can hear him every Sunday morning on Premier Christian Radio uh, with today with Jeff Vines. It's broadcasting early morning. You have to be up pretty early, 6.30. But I know a lot of people who actually, you know, love to start their day off. Uh, with turning on the radio and hearing some good old Bible teaching. So, um, Jeff, uh, before we leap back into talking about, you know, what you're doing in the ministry in Southern California, and, and obviously it's a ministry that is reaching all over the world. Um, you did mention earlier that that you were influenced early on by by Ravi Zacharias and that that apologetic side of your ministry, you know, has been important. Um, obviously, the last month or so, um, there had just you know, been a bombshell, really, in terms of this independent report that was published detailing the scale of um, the abuse that it was actually going on, um, unbeknownst to really anyone, um, by Ravi. Um, and it, these revelations have have kind of shipwrecked, really, his legacy in many ways. Um, very, very painful subject, one that falls very close to home, because I, as I understand it, you were had accompanied Ravi on a number of ministry trips. You you know, knew him well in that sense. What 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 has been your feelings as as all of this has has emerged since his death? Well, well, first of all, I'm I'm like so many others. I I feel a sense of great loss. Uh, it's almost like a second funeral. Hmm. Uh, I actually attended in Atlanta in person yeah. with uh, about ninety other people uh, when Ravi passed away. And the reason I did that is that. You know, I don't know if there's anyone who has been as kind and as uh, generous to me as Ravi. Uh, for some reason, in 1999, when I was doing ministry in New Zealand, uh, Ravi reached out to me. We had our first lunch together uh, because uh, the person that he roomed with when he was in seminary uh, was an elder at the church I pastored at the time. And so that's how the connection was made. I was quoting Ravi and reading his books at the time. And Finally, his roommate said, hey, would you like to meet him? You quote him all the time. You might as well meet him. I thought it was a joke, mm -hmm. but as it turns mm -hmm. out, he was right. So through the 90s, early 2000s, all the way up until the time that he died, Ravi continued to reach out to me. He was, uh, it was like a, he was like a mentor, uh, mm -hmm. primarily from a distance. But when we were together, we would sit in the lounge and talk about theology and philosophy and apologetics. Uh, as you know, he's well-learned, well-read. Mm -hmm. And so when I heard that news, at first, I'll tell you, I, I didn't believe it. Mm. I just, as a matter of fact, I was the president of a convention this year, and I told the board or the committee that he would be exonerated. Mm. I said, I'm sure of it. And the reason I, I said that is because, you know how you watch people when you're around them. Mm. And I never saw anything that would suggest any kind of impropriety. Mm. You know, I would watch him sometimes when, you know, attractive girls would walk to the table just to see how, you know, you want to see how mm. your mentor mm. will respond. Mm. If there's a respect, if there's a, you know, mm -hmm. and because I never saw one small iota <laughs> of anything that would be inappropriate, I automatically assumed that this was, uh, this was not true. And then I found out that it was being, uh, 
pushed quite aggressively by an atheist. Well, of course, mm. when you hear that, you're going to think, well, of course it is. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, and so uh, in the beginning, uh, I was very frustrated when I, and hurt, sorry, I was rather hurt when I learned that uh, he had actually invested in a spa. That was my first red flag. Mm. Where was the person to say to him, that doesn't look good. Mm. And then as the information started to come out, I actually flew to Atlanta and just had some time because I'm also close to, to the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily Margie. I've never known mm-hmm. her well. She's mm-hmm. very uh, kind. Uh, Sarah, especially Naomi in Wellspring, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I've had uh, Naomi to speak. I actually interviewed her at one of our conventions here in Anaheim. So I'm very close to them, and I, I could see the hurt. You could tell, Justin, that there was total mm-hmm. shock and surprise. Yeah, yeah. You know, you really can't hide that. If you know something and it comes out, but you could tell that it wasn't just me. It was with everyone. Well, mm-hmm. What? This can't be true. And then as the information came out, I found myself moving from hurt and devastation to feeling like I had lost a family member. And then I started to get angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually called my father-in-law and said, hey, I think we need to talk because I'm having some emotions here that I'm not. I'm not dealing well with because he meant that much to me. Yeah. And in a real way, we'll always, but with this shadow, you know, you, you have to understand people listening to this have to understand we have to have sympathy and care and concern for these young women. Mm. You can't be a Christ follower mm. and just push that to the side and, and, and in denial. And so I've got this internal struggle happening and perhaps I haven't dealt completely with it yet, Justin. I'm, it's a process. Mm. I've got this struggle happening where I love this man and this over here where I feel so much empathy and sympathy. How dare you mm. treat these take advantage of these young women and, and even married women in this way. So it's an ongoing struggle. And I think we Christ followers have the right to be frustrated, to be angry and to be hurt. Uh, people keep asking me, I've gotten a lot of calls. Hey, wh-, and one of the questions that I'm asking, it makes me very uncomfortable is, do you think Ravi's in heaven? And I always answer that with when somebody asked me that question about anybody mm. and it's, man, I'm just not big enough to sit on that throne. Mm. I, I can't do that. Mm. Uh, so I'll, and I usually end with, I would hate to be Ravi facing jo- God right now. Mm. I do say that, mm. but, but it's hard to, it's unwise to go any further with that. Yeah. I just know that the hurt and the anger and the frustration is real. And I'm sad, Justin, I I'll be yeah. sad for a while. Yeah. I think it has been a bombshell. I mean, I, I knew him far, far, far less well than you, uh, Jeff. And even I was just shocked and, uh, very similarly to you, as I've explained to myself on, on a blog as well, um, didn't want it to be true. I mean, who would? Um, yeah. uh, but but it's something I think, I guess, I guess a reminder that um, no, nobody is mm. immune. There's no, our heroes do let us down. And yeah, um, and yeah I, I can see just from the way you're you're speaking, though, Jeff, just how how hard this has been. I can tell that that's obviously been really tough on you. I've talked, I've spoken with, uh, and I, I won't drag it out here, Justin, mm. but I I've spoken with Robin quite a bit and she's, she's a great uh, source of wisdom for me and my mother-in-law as well, who's a prayer warrior. But the two things that have come out of this for me is number one, it is true that the more fame that you receive, the greater the target, the greater the temptation, and you have to watch your back. Mm. That's true. Mm. Uh, I think 
in a real way, we deny the power of Satan to really come after the servants of God. Now that's no excuse, man. No excuse whatsoever. You still Mm got to do the right thing. Yeah. Because the second thing is, though, Justin, we've had so many fall in the last two years. Mm, mm, uh, you know, mm. you think about the high profile. Yeah. Uh, and there is another man I won't mention out of Chicago that also had great influence over my life. So from where I'm seated, I'm going through this emotional turmoil while I'm thinking, well, who can you trust? You know, yeah. this is what this is. This is the challenge that the church is facing. These are well-respected. These are great leaders. Well, if I can't trust and put my faith in them, and that just has brought me down to that humble level again of saying, wait a minute, Mm. my faith is never in a man. Mm. It's only in one man, the man, Jesus Christ. But I think our church people should have the right to expect a certain level of righteousness and above reproach toward those who serve them. And that led me to the second quote, and that's Billy Graham when he was interviewed by Larry King. And Larry King asked him about the duplicity of so many pastors. Do you remember Billy Graham's response? It's a classic. You know, 10,000 planes take off and land every day, and you'll never hear about those. But the one that crashes, you know, you'll Mm. you'll know every detail. Mm. And I started thinking about the pastors in my life that have done so well, like a Rick Warren right here in Southern Mm. California, Mm. who represents Christ so well. Mm. Uh, You know, a Chuck Swindoll who's still preaching in his Mm. 80s because Mm. he just loves the word of God. My daughter actually told me, Jeff, not Jeff, she said, Dad, I love you, but I got to tell you, I'd rather hear Chuck Swindoll than you. And I said, (laughs) that's okay. So would I. (laughs) And so you think of the Matt Chandlers of the world. You think of the, the people who live great lives. And I've, I've decided that if you're looking for duplicity, you will find it. But if you're looking for consistency, you can find that too. Yeah. So if, du- if duplicity challenges the integrity of the gospel, then does that mean consistency proves its integrity? You can find either one that you're looking for, and yeah. I take comfort in that. Mm. Yeah. Well, look, prayers for you as you as you continue to process that, Jeff. Um, but uh, let's talk about the wider issue of, of apologetics. Um, Dinner with Skeptics. Tell us about the, that book. It came out, I mm. think, probably over 10 years ago now, but um, it's it's a fascinating concept. Can you just explain what you did and how it became the book that it became? Yes. Well, as I got into apologetics and I was living in New Zealand, so this, this was written at the end of my time in New Zealand after 10 years, I had realized that there are things I needed to say, but I wanted to say them in a way that my mom could understand. <laughs> I mean, that was the motivation. And then suddenly I'm invited to do a basketball camp with Dick Bennett. Dick Bennett is Tony Bennett's father. That won't mean much to your UK audience, but Tony Bennett won the national championship last year with the Virginia Cavaliers. So Dick and Tony Bennett are great basketball coaches. He invited me to do a basketball camp over in Australia at the same time I was doing a church planting conference. And they put me into a hotel. And as I'm seated in the hotel trying to check in, a lady comes over who is the hotel managing director. She finds out I'm a pastor. This is the short version. And she invites me to dinner that night. When I get there, I realize that I'm kind of the entertainment for the night. You're all going to make fun (laughs) of this pastor. The book is the story of what happened six hours that night. Wow. That led to the conversion of the manager of the hotel as we dealt with all the issues uh, and questions that they had. And I thought, this is too good. So after it happened, I actually wrote a sermon based on it. And then I thought, man, I have got to write down all these details. And so as I tried to remember the story, I thought, wow, apologetics in story form. It's a Mm. narrative. It's Mm. the questions people ask and the way that I responded. 
on the spot. And, you know, I, I would respond probably differently to a few of those now, but at least it's honest and genuine in how I responded at the time and what I've learned. But the person who became a Christ follower still is a Christ follower. And I'm able to talk to her probably about every two or three years. She still lives and works in Australia. Beautiful story, though. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, by the way, love my it. mother loved it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. If you can write a book your mum loves, then, you know, you've done well. You've done very well. Um, I mean, you mentioned that you discovered when you went out to New Zealand that you weren't actually asking the questions that people really were asking Um out there how how have you kind of how has apologetics kind of been used in your ministry what uh, and and i guess it does depend very much on the context as to what what you're actually doing what you even class as apologetics in that way i i uh actually approach every text i am a textual guy Mm. i will do topical stuff but i'm a textual guy i I start with a passage Mm -hmm. but i also start uh apologetically i'm trying to think how does this passage communicate a truth that would be incredibly relevant to the questions the world is asking. Now, I may not spend 35 minutes on that one issue. I will, I've got this saying in my mind that I'm always trying to grow the believer while connecting with the seeker. That's mm-hmm. something that stays in my mind every time I speak. Am I, am I growing the believer and connecting with the seeker? And so I'm doing the textual work, and, I'm, and I think the Bible is, is so alive in its teaching. So that's easy to do if you do your homework. But somewhere along the line in every message, I'm looking at a key question that the skeptic or the seeker might ask, and I'm addressing it in the passage. And so I, that's the first thing I do. The second thing I do is I'm, I'm constantly having conversation with my non-church friends. You know, I'm a member of a golf club here locally, and I'm not sure there might be a few Christians in the club, not very many, but I stay in contact with them. And they even know, oh, Pastor Jeff's asking me a question again, trying to understand culture. They're okay with it because they know me and they know I'm not going to bring their name up in a sermon. Mm -hmm. And so I'm learning a lot from how they're looking and uh, how they're thinking. And I do those two things. And that kind of keeps me sharp. Uh, As I get older, I'm finding it more challenging to communicate in a way to the younger generation because I'm, I'm a little detached. Mm-hmm. And so I've got a guy on staff that's an Australian who's preaching a lot. And I think he's doing a good job with that, although he's getting older too. So I'm always looking for young guys to, yeah, to communicate yeah. those same truths. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, w- when it comes to the ministry that you've established at One and All Church um, in Southern California, do, do you find that you're drawing kind of quite a young crowd in that sense? Um, what, what does the age profile look like at the church? Yeah, well, I think it's still true that you tend to draw the, draw the age of your pastor. So we draw a lot of people my age and a little yeah. younger. Yeah, And uh, we are drawing young people, but I think that happens because of the style of music that we do. Uh, that's very applicable and relevant to that generation. So we kind of hit them from a few sides. And I feel that if I can just get them in the room, that even though I'm the old guy, that uh, after a while, they may start listening. And I've, I've found that they do. Uh, and I've still got some things to learn there. And I, I'm, it's, a, it's a work in progress. And I think I'll have to work on it till the day that I'm no longer ministering, mm. uh, in, at least in this capacity. But Justin, if I can say one thing, I do think we've learned something valuable. And I think this will be, uh, th- this should be something new to American churches, maybe not to the UK. During COVID, it has dawned on me that I have done a mediocre job at best of bringing up the next generation. And I'm talking all the way from uh, elementary to junior high to high school. You know, when my kids were younger, I experienced something that kind of woke me up to the reality that I spend so much time working hard 
to make the gospel or to communicate the gospel in a relevant way to our culture, but I spend very little time with my kids. And I had a, I had an aha moment and I actually started reading theology to my kids at a very young age. And I would do that every night. I told my wife, I said, look, you've got them all day and I'm sorry, <laughs> but when I come home, I'm going to, I'll bathe them and I'll devote, do devotions with them and I'll be responsible. And you can have some peace to and quiet, which mm. she loved. And mm. I loved, well, you know, I, I travel around to different places doing apologetic stuff in universities or high school campuses, but I do very little here on my own, in my own church. And this year we've come up with a vision. We are really, you know, you, do you remember Sunday school, Justin? Yeah. <laughs> Sunday yeah, school sure. is something that uh, changed my life. I had the great, uh -huh. I mean, I had a privilege of having some good teachers because of the size, you know, when you become a mega church, you start having space problems mm -hmm. and you start trying to find ways to have a bigger group. And then you might have a praise and worship time. And then a speaker, what you don't have is you're not able to do that intense Bible teaching that you did, or you used to do, yeah. or that you experienced when you were younger. Well, I think God has woken me up in this. I mean, I think God has been speaking to me for years now, and we're, we're about to make a significant change. As we communicate the gospel to the world, we're going to somehow go back to that Sunday school Christian ministry time with our kids. And I want to be involved. I want to be involved in the teaching of our junior high and high school. I want them to know that their lead pastor cares about them. And mm -hmm. I want the parents to know they're going to get the very best of who we have on staff investing mm -hmm. in the lives of their kids, because that is the best way to reach the next generation, yeah. isn't it? It, it? it is. But but what a challenge as well, because, I mean, when I think about it, you know, what who who is raising most of our kids these days? well the culture is youtube is you know the it's and it's how do you almost how does like an hour on a sunday morning and you know not everyone goes to church every sunday anyway you know if you get someone once a month you might be doing well how how do you even compete with kind of the 24 7 social media that basically young people and frankly all of us these days are are essentially being raised by it's mm. it's it's not like it used to be you know it used to be that the church in a way the pastor had a lot more kind of of an influence because church was a big deal it was kind of the big thing of the weekend nowadays it is one in a huge range of options and you know and it, I, I feel like many churches feel like they're competing frankly with with yeah. all of those options yeah i've i have spent my life trying to problem solve difficult issues in regards to church structure and church growth but I've decided in my head, I'm, I am going to spend that same kind of effort on this question because, Justin, I don't have the answer yet, but I know that I've got to find it. And I believe in a God who will guide and lead me through this if this is his calling and will for my life in the church. You and I talked earlier about my frustration because I didn't become a, a quote, mega church pastor, the normal uh, process. I, I didn't arrive at this place nor like most mega church pastors do. You know, I spent 10 years in Africa, 10 years in New Zealand. Suddenly this group of elders asked me if I will pastor this church. It's way over my head. The first few weeks I went through a, a state of depression, realizing that maybe I can't do this. There are too many people, too many functions going on. I can't possibly manage this. And then God brought my father-in-law out again, who's been a great mentor to coach me through that. And now I feel like, you know, I'm a fish in the pond that I'm supposed to be in. Mm. I have got to solve this problem. And when I figure it out, I'm going to call you, <laughs> Justin, 
Here's what we've decided. The cool thing is we've got we've got people around me who are experts at social media. Yeah. I don't I think it's going to be a both and somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm committed to the next few months of figuring yeah. this out before yeah. we relaunch in the fall. Well, look, when when you figure it out, do do get in touch because I, I know a whole bunch of other church pastors who are gonna <laughs> gonna want to hear what the solution is. Oh. But I, I mean, yeah, that that's it. I, I and the, I, when I visited one and all, you know, I was just blown away by the facility i mean you you operate on a, on a couple of different a few different campuses but uh, the one that that i was speaking from you know you, it was like back to back services mm. each one was packed in there's an evening service there's there's so much going on and and um you know when you look at the average church here in the uk you, you look at that and you think gosh wow we can't compete almost with with that but but i am aware as well that you know size isn't everything and and i i guess I've also heard those who have sort of been a little bit critical of the megachurch sort of phenomenon as a whole, you know, people who say, well, it's, it draws a crowd, but how deep does it go? You know, um, that whether there is that problem of you come for the, for the spectacle of the Sunday, but does it actually engender actual discipleship and community and all those things? What's been your experience as you've, you've seen this church grow, you're really fast, actually, I think, in the last 10 years oh. or so, Jeff. Um, but what, 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 is, what do you say to some of those challenges, typically, that, that come with the megachurch thing? Well, first, I think a lot of that is true. I think a lot of what they're saying is true. It's easy to be part of a big church and stay on the fringes and enjoy the entertainment because things tend to be done with excellence and make no transformational change in your life. And I, as I shared with you, my sixth year here, it dawned on me. So what a lot of people are coming and I changed, I, I, I did change my tactics a little. I started saying things like, you know, if, if you are a Christ follower and you have no passion of, of concerning the word of God and to live according to the precepts of scripture, then you're on the outside looking in. You may be coming to church, but you're on the outside looking in. And I'm concerned about you because if you have the spirit of God in you, there should be a passion toward holiness and purity and a caring concern of the precepts of God. I changed my language. I, I significantly wow. changed the way I was preaching. I think we lost, I think we lost maybe close to 500 people over the next two or three years. Wow. And now I'm at a point in my life where I'm saying, what is worship really about? Are we trying to entertain you? Or are we trying to lead you to the throne of God? You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about liturgy a lot these days. Mm. I'm thinking about, there's not enough reading of the word of God in our service. There's not enough prayer in service. It's, mm. it's a few songs and Hey, that was great. And now pastor Jeff's <laughs> going to give us a, a sermon with a couple of jokes and we're going to be happy. And we're going to go home. <laughs> I can't do that anymore. And mm. I think COVID-19 has to wake us up that we can, and I, I agree so much. Look, a big church means just on its own means almost nothing. It, so what? I mean, if you want to get a big crowd, you can give away free beer. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if a big crowd is the ultimate goal. Sure. And uh, I think we have to stop and say, okay, are we making disciples? And uh, I can, for the first time in the life of the church here, and it started probably three or four years ago, two, two years after I had this kind of epiphany, we are making disciples here, Justin, and we're doing it through things like Rooted that goes into life groups, that goes into intentionality and teaching. We're just not doing it effectively enough with the youth, and that's what's got to change. Great. Um, I'm, I'm just so pleased for the time we've had, and, and it is drawing to a close now. Jeff, um, what can people expect from the the, the radio ministry? I, I know that um, you know you're not a typical 
mega church pastor it's not a typical sort of ministry either because this is a ministry that that really has actually gone global it's not just listened to in the states in fact yeah. i think more people are probably listening outside of the states frankly to to your ministry than than inside the states so so what why is that what's what's the ministry doing in terms of the radio side well i i i when uh, when i was first approached to consider going on in australia new zealand by vision radio and by rama uh I made it very clear from the beginning, you know, I do not want, well, the question was why you've got so many preachers, why? Mm. And then I met this guy named Phil Edwards down in Australia, who I was so impressed with. They want to get the gospel to the most isolated parts of the South Pacific and beyond. And I said, here's a guy that just wants to partner with people of like-mindedness. So it wasn't about trying to get your show on air to raise money or to sell CDs or MP3 files. It was just about partnering to get the gospel to people mm-hmm. who, who did not normally have access to it. Cause we in America think that everybody has high speed internet and it's free. <laughs> <laughs> and there are plenty of places in the world that still doesn't have access to that. So radio is still a powerful way to get the mm-hmm. gospel out. Mm-hmm. So when I learned about what was happening down there, I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's partner with them. So we have a production company down in Tasmania that produces all things. And then Phil talked to me about Jeff, because you lived in Africa and because you lived in Australia and New Zealand, there's a sense of relevancy you have with postmodern and with the Christian culture. And so we like you. We want to partner with you. I said, okay. And then I started realizing that this would enable us to have a voice and to partner with people who really want to get the gospel to the world. To tell you the truth, Justin, the thing that appealed to me so much about London and Premier is number one, I visited your offices. I read your magazine that is absolutely excellent, one of the best publications that I've read dealing with culture and the gospel. I met you and your unbelievable podcast, and I listened to some of those, and I've got a lot of our people here listening to them. And I thought, okay, this seems to me to be an organization that truly has their heart in the right place. For them, it's about getting the gospel to their culture and doing it in a way that is loving, compassionate, giving, you know, uh, generous, uh, sacrificial. And I thought, I want to, I want to partner with people. I, you know, I'm 56 now. I want to partner with people who actually have good motives. Uh, I, I don't have time anymore, uh, uh, really to waste on things that are just don't matter. Mm-hmm. And so if, uh, if, if vision and, uh, premier and, uh, Rama can take what we produce down in Tasmania and use it for the good, I'm all for it. And uh, I think our relationship with Premier will just go from strength to strength. And I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for you, Justin, and your ministry. And I can't wait to have you and your lovely wife back. Well, we're we're looking forward to to maybe being able to do that uh, in the the future. But for now, it's been so good to catch up with you, Jeff. Um, uh, I'm I'm glad that the opportunity of of the profile interview meant that we could reconnect after a little Mm -hmm. while. Uh, and to hear all that's been going on. Um, bless you. Um, and if you are listening and you would like to um, catch up with Jeff's radio ministry, it's broadcasting 6.30am. You'll have to be an early bird, but it'll be worth it <laughs> on Premier Christian Radio Sunday mornings. Um, for now, Jeff, thank you very much for being my guest on The Profile. Thank you, Justin. God bless you. And if you want to catch this show again, do check it out on podcast premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. And don't forget to get yourself a free sample copy of that magazine that Jeff so eloquently encouraged you to uh, to get hold of. It's a uh, premier Christianity magazine and free sample available premierchristianity.com 
forward slash free sample. We'll be back next week with another guest talking about their ministry, life, faith and walk of witness. For now, thank you very much for being with us. and We'll see you next time.